And like Julia, feel free to participate in any part of this. Um, <laughs> feel free to be part of the podcast. Please, please. <laughs> I know. I know. This is one of. This is like a cutscene that you might like. Like me and Dave talking about about Dark Tower. Welcome to Polygon Cutscene. I'm Susanna Polo. I'm Julia Alexander. And this is a podcast where we talk about the TV, movies, and comics that are shaping and reshaping our culture every day. Today, we're talking about virtual reality with Ben Kachera. So... I wanted to bring Ben on because virtual reality has been kind of a thing in the past couple of weeks uh, with several high-profile uh, consumer hardware sort of virtual reality solution. I don't, I don't know. Jargon. Um, uh, hitting retail and going out to folks, and we've been playing around with it a lot in the Polygon office. Um, and you know what? You like It's a lot of virtual reality is games. Um, but there's also stuff, I know there's also stuff in there for experiencing movies and TV in all kinds of new ways and doing neat stuff. And to be fair, virtual reality is also kind of a concept that a lot of science fiction universes that are relevant to, you know, the stuff that we talk about in cutscene, um, it's stuff that, 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 that science fiction plays around with. Um, so Ben, tell me about what, like, what's... There's stuff in VR right now that isn't just playing games, right? Right. And we don't we don't even have like a great vocabulary for what those things are. I think most people say like experiences or they're like movies but they're in VR, but they're not because mm-hmm. so it's a whole it's a whole interesting thing. But you're you're absolutely right. There's like there there's a program that I like to show people called irrational exuberance and you begin in like a rocky almost egg type of situation you look like you're in the internals of like a geode and with the controller you can tap the edges and they break away and it turns out you're floating deep in the vastness of space mm-hmm. and lo- like you do that, like you do and then things happen and you're not interacting with much and you're not controlling anything it's something that happens around you and to you and it's meant to evoke very specific emotions i don't know what to call that um, mm-hmm. it's not a movie in VR because it's not a narrative. Uh, it's not a game because there's no lose condition or scoring mechanism or anything that formalists would argue would make a game. Right. It's, You're not affecting what's happening to you. There's no interactive right. portion of it other than you can change which way you're facing, I'm assuming. Sure. And then there's things like Henry, which is um, a short film, a short virtual reality film that does tell a narrative about a little hedgehog, and it's narrated by Elijah Wood. And there is a story, and that absolutely feels like what you would imagine a film but in VR would, would feel like on a very limited scale. So that there, there are these different things that people are messing with, including Oculus itself, that are entertainment products or ways to view entertainment that have nothing to do with games. And it's super cool, and I think it's one of the, the more interesting things about VR, personally. Yeah, and and, and there, are, there are also, like, there are VR setups where it's just like, here's a virtual living room, watch Netflix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and, and there's... Uh, Oculus has a program called Oculus Video where... 
you can import your own video files uh, with a, a few supported codecs, and you can watch like there's some Vimeo stuff, and you can stream Twitch in different environments, <laughs> which, which is really interesting. So you, you can watch like Twitch streamers in an IMAX theater or on a theater that's set on the moon, and if you look behind you, you can see the lunar lander. And it's very strange to watch someone be streaming a game while you feel like you're on the surface of the moon. And, and VR doesn't really add anything to Twitch other than the environment and the huge virtual screen um, in that situation. But it's still a re- it's a really interesting new way to take in this content. Yeah, it definitely. It's it's I think. We've, I mean, maybe it's just a polygon thing, but we, we talk so much about games on VR that it's also sort of a new medium for, um, for film, um, f- for this, this situation where you're sort of like, like, are, like, how, how close do you think we are to filmmakers doing stuff in VR, um, and stuff specifically designed for, like, in, in the same way that, like, um, in comics, you can't control how fast the reader reads it, and you have to sort of communicate time in other ways that you don't in film. Even though there, you know, there's a lot of shared like uh, this is getting in the weeds now, but there's a lot of shared like language between comics and film, and how we talk right. about like how they work um, and how they communicate. Um, but like, are we looking at are we looking at a situation where filmmakers start making movies for a situation in which the viewer has the freedom to look anywhere? I mean, and there's already people like uh, Chris Milk who is doing a lot of things in uh, virtual reality in terms of filmmaking and narratives and how to tell stories inside these spaces, um, doing a lot of interesting things. I, I think. What's fascinating about VR as a way to tell a story, I'm not that interested in seeing what Steven Spielberg would do inside VR. Mm-hmm. Um, because Steven Spielberg has spent his entire very considerable life and career perfecting the vocabulary of how he wants to tell a story. When you're watching a Spielberg film, you know you're watching a Spielberg film. He knows how to use these tools. Virtual reality has no set vocabulary at all. Right. And I think it would be very hard to see someone who, once you move from television or film into virtual reality, I think you would almost be constrained by the lessons you've learned in the other format. Mm -hmm. Whereas someone coming from uh, the video game world or even starting from scratch sees more of the potential of what could happen in virtual reality versus trying to translate an existing skill set into VR. When something happens when something happens on the big screen, there are dozens if not hundreds of tricks that filmmakers use to draw your eye to something specific in the frame. Mm-hmm. A good filmmaker knows how to do that very efficiently. How do you draw your eye to something when the story is happening literally in 3D space, 360 degrees around you? Or should you? Is is this something that Mm -hmm. you should be looking at a particular scene and that's the right way to do it? Or should you be designing narrative experiences where there are five different scenes happening around Mm -hmm. you and you can pick and choose on the fly? Yeah, or are we looking at at something like we see in modern video game cutscenes? Or not even cutscenes, but modern... I mean, I'm I'm thinking of stuff like... I mean, this is just 
there are probably more examples of this, but the one that comes to mind is um, some of the sequence, some of the fear sequences in um, in the in the Arkham games, where moving through the sequence mm-hmm. depends on sometimes turning around and looking in another direction in order to trigger whatever is about to happen. Right. Well, the, 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 that's an interesting point. I went recently to a uh, VR studio in Toronto called Secret Location, and they're working with sci-fi on a really interesting project. And we talked about that, and I said, you know, how do you redesign the way we the way we approach narrative arcs, because or, or just narrative storytelling in general, because it's been the same for the most part since the since books, right? When you write down the script, it's very it's it's a linear. Uh, experience like you you just follow through the story with VR like Ben said with VR it's like you're you're in a 360 degree world where there's options like there's options to explore and there's opt and there's options to not pay attention to what you should be paying attention to mm-hmm. and they they said that was the biggest issue they had going into this new series which is going to debut later uh, I think actually next year either later this year or early next year. They said that is the biggest issue. They have the technology. They have people who understand the technology. What they don't have, what the industry doesn't have, is writers who understand the storytelling how to, language. Yeah. How to do the storytelling language? Because there are writers that are being like a games writing. Right? There are writers who understand how to how to write out choices for people. Okay, you can either go here, you can do this, or you can do that, and the, the, that will lead to a different story altogether. Uh, which is basically choose your own adventure. But how do you create a linear story like a film or a television show while still giving people the ability to explore. So and like, what if this Go So ahead. one of the yeah, so actually one of the cool things that uh comes to mind like that you could do this with for example would be something like a procedural drama because if you had a thing where it's like oh here's a dead body you could then use the vr to be like okay let's let this person explore this body like they can look for clues they can look for whatever like a csi type thing in vr would kind of work because you can take moments and be like, oh, we can make this interactive, and we can. It can be something that you can explore. Well, at the same time, there's still an endpoint. Mm-hmm. There's still like we're still going to figure out who killed this person. And that, and that's also a storytelling genre that's so repetitive and is so familiar. Exactly. That that the the viewer may just you know already have some preconceived ideas about what is most important to focus on at any at literally any given point of that narrative. But Ben Ben brings up a really good point. And the question is. It's not can't we? Because yes, we can. There's there's definitely ways to go about bringing film and television into VR and integrating that technology. The question is, should we? The question is, do we even want that? I think film has over the past hundred hundred plus years defined itself. Like it's kind of found what it, it what it needs to be. And yeah, there are still technological changes happening all the time. There's still um, there's better storytellers coming in all the time, better filmmakers. But it's kind of at its like it knows what it needs to be in the same way that mm. books know what they need to be like it's, they, it's mature it's exactly and vr and gaming gaming is still maturing and gaming is still finding itself it's still a young medium uh and it's getting better every day and vr is the youngest vr is the infant in all of this um and, and the thing is there are so many things that we don't know that could end up being strengths when it comes to virtual reality storytelling um, you can take in the entirety of a movie theater screen with your eye. You see all of it at all times, even though you're focused on different things. Um, you can't. You physically can't do that in a virtual environment. So 
when you look ar- when you look away from something you're honestly dealing with a completely virtual world in that object permanence doesn't need to exist so imagine you turn away from something and then when you turn back it's something completely different um, and it knows where you're looking, and it can adjust the environment in real time. What can you do with that? Is that something you don't want to play with, or is that something you can absolutely play with for dramatic effect? And you have to – if you look at the early days of what I consider to be modern game design, and you look at things like what Shigeru Miyamoto did with Super Mario Brothers and World 1-1, and how much of the game it teaches you to play very rapidly – you have to have that level of intuitive control on the part of the player where, or the viewer where they're looking at something where you want them to look. But it has to seem like it was their idea. Um, one, of the, one of the strongest best practices and worst rules to break in VR is manually changing where the player is looking. It feels like someone grabbing you by the temples and wrenching your head around and forcing you to look in another direction. It makes you ill instantly. So if you need the viewer to look in another direction, you need to give them a reason to, and they need to, of their own volition, move their head. And these are really interesting opportunities and they're really interesting challenges. And I don't think we have good solutions for any of this yet. That's really fascinating because I'm sort of watching a similar situation happen with um, comics in comics and digital publishing where like right now the place we're at with comics and digital is like we're just sort of recreating print comics online and in in on tablets and in apps um, and there's nothing wrong with that like obviously the printed page of comics has worked out pretty well for like going on a hundred years um, mm-hmm. but there's no reason that it has to stay that way um, and and we're sort of slowly seeing um, seeing comics companies figure out what comics can be when they're not constrained by this is how big a comic book page is then we have to turn the page um, this is how many panels like look good on a page this is like this is how big a double page spread is um, this is how you, this is a, let's let's make sure that the big shocking thing is behind a page turn so that people don't see it out of the corner of their eye when they get to the like <laughs> top left corner um, that all of that stuff is work, can can work really differently um, in a digital comic um, and everybody's still sort of playing around with that and figuring out what that means and it it's sort of like the same thing well like okay you can have a VR program where that simulates a living room and then you watch Netflix in it but you don't mm-hmm. have to be watching you don't have to be just be watching um, The Wire in a fake living room you know you could there are other things you can do with that it gets even it gets even more basic and more strange when you consider that harsh one of the one of the limiting factors one of the organizing principles of film and we almost have to really break these things down to their basics when we're talking about them in such a broad way one of the organizing factors of film is that it's an art form meant to be displayed to a large number of people at the same time yeah it is a, it is a presentation so it is a set amount of time no one has any control over what happens on screen when i go up to use the restroom The film doesn't change for anyone else. Nothing about the situation reacts. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you handle 
It's it's around two hours, let's say ninety minutes to two and a half hours. It's probably what ninety five percent of what films fall into now. So how do we handle something as basic as time when we're saying that these narrative experiences may only exist for a single person? Let's yeah. say we're making a Star Wars VR narrative experience, okay? And we're hanging out with Ray um, in her uh, little uh, Walker apartment in Jakku, and she walks out. Now, if I decide to stay in that environment and walk around using my, my Vive, which has room scale, and, you know, pick up uh, her little toy that she made or pick up the knickknacks and really explore them and look at them. And You're painting a really nice picture right now, Ben. I just well, yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Yo, Lucasfilm needs to hire you. Yeah. <laughs> like, Lucasfilm is already working on all of this in Industrial Light and Magic. This is oh, nothing... Yeah. They don't know about. Yeah, uh, like like if if like there are Disney Imagineers right now sure. who are <laughs> doing really crazy things. But the question is, while I'm in here spending, let's say, ten minutes looking around and like looking at what books she might have, or going through her data pad and reading diary entries and all this environmental storytelling, and she's out there doing something, am I missing the story if I'm in there? Or does the narrative experience know that the character left, the player is still experimenting and exploring, stop the story, and then when I walk out the door, the story is triggered again and picks up where it left off. Mm -hmm. I could spend an hour in there because it's designed just for me, the viewer, and the, the film or the narrative basically pauses, allowing me as much time as I would like to spend in that environment. What if after Poe and Finn take the TIE Fighter, you could just walk around and explore the deck of the Super Star Destroyer for as long as I wanted to? And, like, are they still having a gunfight outside? Are they still blowing up the turrets on the ship before I jump there? Or should everything pause until I'm ready for the story to continue? These are fundamental questions we don't have answers to, and I don't know if there is a right way to do it. I did when I was at, I think it was GDC. It was either GDC or CES. Mm -hmm. I, I saw a presentation from someone who worked at Industrial Light and Magic uh, showing all of the ways they used virtual reality to basically direct The Force Awakens. Hmm. Um, and you could wear a virtual reality headset and look around a virtual set, uh, such as uh, the Star Destroyer, the Rex Star Destroyer. And you could be there on set if you were somewhere near a very powerful computer. The other thing they showed off is the ability to stream a 3D version of that scene to anyone who has a Wi-Fi connection who had an iPad. So let's say J.J. Abrams is doing pre-production on a creature in Burbank and they're out um, – I think they shot a lot of that in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Creating a combination of a real and a virtual set. He can pick up an iPad and use it to look around in in 360 degrees. Oh, like a window? Like a window. Oh, and, my God. Block the shot, seeing the CG as if it were real. And there are... This, this isn't addressed in the behind-the-scenes things, but I've been watching and studying The Force Awakens since I've got the Blu-ray, as I imagine many of our audience has. And the shots that happen in the action scenes are, in some cases, so prolonged and so intricately 
planned in terms of where the camera goes and how it moves and how kind of gnarly it gets as it's tracking the Millennium Falcon or the long tracking shots that happen as the X-Wings fly over Maz's place. Like, trying all of the different visual effects things that are happening at the same time, the fact that they had the technology that allowed them to really either plan or experiment with these camera moves to such stunning effect, I have to think at least partially that was due to all of the pre-production work they did in virtual reality, where Mm -hmm. they could stand in these places, move the camera however many times they wanted to, however they wanted to through the 3D kind of previs and plan it out perfectly. Like, I think it really helped make that film as kinetic as it ended up being in such effects heavy shots i would love to know if my theory is correct or not yeah well so we're gonna we'll segue now into the maybe the thing that that most made me want to have this conversation with you is that um is that there's uh i think maybe the most i think yeah i think i would probably say the most prominent like cultural connection that we have to a fictional world where virtual reality is a very big thing in it um is star trek um, I mean, there, there's there there are probably some outliers in there that I'm just not thinking of right now. Where virtual reality is, of course, like the core, you know, sort of like the core sci-fi element of the series. Um, but I, th- I think it's safe to say that Star Trek is bigger than like the new Johnny Quest adventures. Um, and that's a deep cut that maybe neither of you get. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, so so Star Trek, like like we we look, like next gener- the, from next generation on, Star Trek introduces the idea of the holodeck, um, and and it's infamous enough that everybody everybody who's a fan of Star Trek knows what a holodeck episode means. <laughs> um, like, like uh, I, I, I'm a big fan of holodeck episodes, but I understand that that's kind of a controversial, um, that's a controversial position. But maybe it's because I, I didn't start with Next Generation; I started with Voyager. Where see, see, ne- in Next Generation, the holodeck is as new to the characters as like um, as uh, the the transporter is in like um, in Star Trek. Oh God, what was the name of the first Star Trek movie? Was it just Star Trek? It was Star Trek colon the motion picture. Right, the very, yeah, very yeah, first yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, and the holodeck, in, in Next Generation, the holodeck is like the new technology that everybody is grappling with. Um, where like, everybody, like in the very first episode, like, like I can't remember if it's Geordi or Data, but some, somebody walks into the holodeck and is like, oh my god, it's like there's a park in here. This is This is amazing. They've never seen... They've never seen holodeck technology before, and you know, in the, I think in the first season, like Riker falls in love with a holodeck woman in like thirty seconds, um, and it turns out that she was engineered by aliens for something. I don't, I don't know. Um, and there's there's a whole not, there's an episode a few seasons later where Riker again like gets trapped in a holodeck simulation of like his perfect life um, by an alien entity. God, Riker, ease up. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. No, then like the holodeck is definitely like like in TNG they they definitely use it a few times to just like break things. Like there's an episode where Jordy gets frustrated that Data keeps figuring out all of the Sherlock Holmes holo novels that they have like really easily. So he <laughs> he orders the holodeck to make. Um, to make a Sherlock Holmes mystery that even Data can't figure out. So the holodeck interprets that as creating AI. It creates a real Professor Moriarty that is fully capable of 
consciousness and thinking and finds it, out that it's a hologram. Like, it, it, it doesn't... It's, uh, isn't the mind screw at the end of that that they actually put the AI inside a larger, like, artificial version of the world? So he I, thinks he broke out, but he's, like, in a data cube the whole time? I think that might be it. I can't remember if it's that or an episode I haven't seen yet, because I've, I've definitely... I've definitely... I know that that is the ending to one of the holodeck episodes, but I can't remember if the, if it's that one. So, but, so that's, like, sort of the relationship the next generation has with the holodeck, where it's, like, this new technology and, and the characters haven't really figured it out yet um, and it's definitely new none of them have encountered it before being on the Enterprise and it's on the Enterprise because the Enterprise is a long-range ship it's going to be in space for a very long time and the holodeck is how people relax and also feel like they're not on a ship and like they're on a planet like it's a it's a psychological aid it's for entertainment it's all the but it's it's very specifically like we have this because we are on a ship and it's in the middle of space like it's not sure. it's not retail technology it's not something that everybody has um but the first Star Trek series I ever watched all the way through was Star Trek Voyager, where even though it takes place in the same time period as next generation and it was only made um like five, five a few years maybe a decade after um after next generation came out um the holodeck in Voyager is fun. It is the primary way that the characters interact with media, just full stop. Um, and and it's implied that it's from childhood. Um, there's an episode of of Star Trek Voyager where um, there's there's one little girl on the ship because the whole plot of Voyager is that they're lost in the in in the gamma quadrant I think I can never remember which quadrant but it's one that's very far away from home and they're cut off from Starfleet and there's one little girl on the ship because her mother was pregnant her mother realized that she was pregnant just after they got lost um, and and her mother has given her access to a hollow novel that her mother used to play with um and 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 it, it's very cute you know it's like it's like the sort of fraggle rock of hollow novels you know like it, it's te- you know it's it's the kids show it's teaching her lessons about um you know basic lessons about sharing and getting along with people and stuff and i think eventually the safety protocols get broken down and like somebody has to go actually do it for real or whatever but anyway um because that's that's what happens in every holodeck episode the safety protocols break down um but there's a scene in the episode where the mother like visits her daughter's hollow novel and the characters remember her because she used to play with them which is like so like that's so like it's that toy story thing you know where like the toys remember interacting with the child and now the child is an adult um and so like like it's very clear that the hollow novel has been programmed to be a multi-generational media experience um which is like a fundamentally different approach to the role of 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 the holodeck in culture in voyager than we see in next generation um and i remember i was talking about this on twitter and ben you expressed surprise that you hadn't that you had just assumed that um the holodeck and virtual reality technology in star trek was commonplace sure that like everyone there's you know everyone if not had one in their home that they had a place they could go and use one i i always thought that was it was just a technology that people had 
in, in the Star Trek universe. Yeah, and it's it's. I mean, it, it, like as I'm saying, it sort of depends on what show you're watching. But um, but like in ne- in Next Generation, it's very much like the weird thing. They have a whole episode about um, a. There's a recurring character in Next Generation um, whose name is Barclay, whose sort of recurring thing is that he's addicted to the holodeck, that he's like created this life in there that he's more he's, he has very he has severe anxiety and he has created a life within the holodeck that he is more comfortable with um, than reality and that that's kind of a problem um, and and on the other hand like in there's one of my very very favorite episodes of Voyager ever is one where the whole crew collectively becomes obsessed with this hollow novel that's about themselves, that's about the crew of the Voyager having a mutiny. And you can play as, like, Tom Paris or Belana Torres, or you can play as, like, other bridge crew officers as you go through this hollow novel about the Voyager having, uh, about a mutiny. And there's no ending to it, and they don't know who wrote it. And everybody wants to know how it ends, but nobody can find it. And, and Janeway actually calls a meeting of all of the bridge crew and is like, we have to fix this problem because they're cut off from Starfleet. They're not getting new entertainment. And like the, now there's this like show of the week that everybody in the ship is obsessed with. And she's like, it's a morale problem. We need to figure this out. Um, and Tuvok, her Vulcan... Her, her Vulcan um, Ah, crap. He used to be your second in command. I can't remember what it, can't remember what his rank is after Chakotay, but blah, 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 Star Trek. Anyway, Tuvok, the Vulcan member of the crew, raises his hand and is like, I wrote it. And they're like, what, are you kidding me? Like, you wrote this incredibly compelling hollow novel? You're a Vulcan. And he's like, I wrote it as a training exercise because back when we got lost, it really seemed like we were going to have a mutiny. But then everybody got along fine, and it was clear that we weren't going to have a mutiny, so I stopped working on it. And Janeway orders him to finish his hollow novel so how, how does it end um oh it ends with one of the characters it turns out that um an evil character who left the ship two seasons ago found his hollow novel and put a virus in it so that her character would become evil at the end and trap whoever was using it inside the holodeck like it just turns into a holodeck episode um and i don't remember what the actual end of the hollow novel is <laughs> <laughs> but, but it just it just turns into a regular holodeck episode. Um But yeah, one of the one of the more interesting things about Voyager I found is that um that there there are scenes in Voyager where they like there's a there's a two part episode of Voyager with Sarah Silverman in it. It's amazing. They go back in where they go back in time to the nineties. They go back in time to the contemporary time in which Voyager was being filmed. Um, and a couple of the characters on the Voyager are aliens who were not raised within Starfleet. They're from the Gamma Quadrant. Um, and they get really obsessed with Earth television, with daytime soap operas. Um, and they've been asked, they've been asked to monitor Earth television so that Voyager can tell whether or not they're being detected by, um, by the, the, like, by people in the past so that they preserve the timeline. And and so they're watching daytime television, they're watching news broadcasts and stuff, and they're, like, fascinated by it, and they're super into it. And then there's just, like, there's just a regular old Starfleet, like, one of the bridge crew characters behind them going, you know, I just, I, I don't think I could get into a story that I wasn't the main character of. And it that just blew my mind. Like, that's such a fundamentally different way to interact with media than we have now. Um, and it's, it's really too bad that, like, 
that the shows it'll be interesting to see like maybe we'll get some of that in the new Star Trek adaptation but um, Star Trek in the 90s like video games hadn't reached like a cultural saturation that we would have sort of an exa- a culturally a culturally like saturated idea of stories where the 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 viewer is the main character um, and and so t- it was interesting to watch sort of Star Trek kind of play around with that and 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 posit this idea of an entire society where the way that most people interact with media is as someone who's participating in it. Yeah, and it's these are I, I talk to a lot of people in the virtual reality community about the rift and the vive and all of these different things that are happening all at once right now and it's getting to the point where hopefully in the next few months everything is having shipping delays. People will be able to buy this stuff in greater numbers. And I don't think people are quite ready for all of the different fundamental ways it could shift culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, all of these things that used to be very science fiction-y are suddenly becoming very real. And we're encountering, if you're using VR hardware, you're encountering situations that you're reacting to as if it were real that are completely fictional, but you're having a strong emotional reaction to it. Right. And describing that to other people and explaining it to other people or even explaining it to developers in some cases is tricky because there are certain situations in certain levels of violence almost that we're used to in a traditional video game that seem incredibly wrong in virtual reality. Yeah. Um, like your average scene from Call of Duty, which we're all pretty much numb to at this point because um, warfare as spectacle has so uh, engulfed video games and film that, you know, we can see things like the opening scene from Saving Private Ryan and it's affecting, but we can deal with it. Being inside that in virtual reality, I think, could really mess you up. Yeah. Um, I think if you've been in a wartime situation, it could trigger a lot of very profound emotional issues, Um, if not straight up uh, PTSD. I think even if you haven't, you get a small taste of how traumatic those experiences can be. Um, I was playing a demo. We did a video on it uh, a few days ago about how strange... I felt it was to be, quote unquote, playing with a very realistic version of firearms that worked mechanically like a firearm did. In real life, I don't like guns. I I, I find them uncomfortable. Um, I'd rather not be around them if given uh, my choice. But in VR, suddenly I'm playing in the experience where I'm picking up a handgun and I don't even really know how to use it. So like... And I have this very odd emotional reaction because I'm dealing with something that in the real world I wouldn't want to be around, but I am because it's a it's a, a game or an experience or a sandbox or whatever. And that was in a very quiet, controlled environment where I'm basically in a firing range by myself. If you really try to overload the player, I have no idea how they would react or why you would even want to do that. We're seeing a lot of games where you're you're fighting or shooting at like very basically rendered robots or human opponents with their faces covered, like yeah, future, yeah, like futuristic that, um, soldiers. Uh, budget cuts is one of them. Um, what's rod- that? Um, what's that one where where when you move, time goes forward, and if you don't move, time super goes hot, down. super hot, yeah, right. super hot, which is also very very stylized. 
mm-hmm. um, human representations. Are, are so I don't think anyone has. So, yeah, so I haven't played many or any games I can think of where I'm firing a gun that I'm holding in my hand at a human target with its face uncovered. Literally, mm-hmm. no one has wanted to do that yet. Yeah. Because it's it's you feel like you're shooting someone, and it turns out that's a really uncomfortable feeling, even in virtual reality. So it's all very stylized violence or very science fiction-y or against robots or... Their faces are covered and they barely look human. We're seeing a lot of that. It's it's a really interesting thing to see people like very much back away from certain types of violence in virtual reality because just instinctively it feels wrong. Yeah, yeah. That's it, it. Seems like something that's 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 a big. It seems like a big question, like almost as big as like what is the language of storytelling in virtual reality? Um, just sort of like these questions about violence in the context of the video game industry, in the context of film, um, and in the context of, like, you know, eventually this stuff is going to be less of a rarity and more of, you know, more of you actually know somebody who uses it if you are not working at a blog whose job is to specifically cover all of this stuff. (laughs) Um... And and yeah, like that, like that doesn't seem like something we can just dig into, but it does seem like something that is going to be sort of one of the open questions about VR going forward. So we're going to try to wrap things up, even though that's kind of a, it's a usual. I mean, that's it's it's not unusual for us to find a dark subject just as we are about to end <laughs> the podcast. Um, but so. There are there's there's the Vive and there's the Rift and there's um there's there's the Oculus and there's stuff that is sort of still like shipping delays and you had to pre-order it and all that junk but there are some other there are some other options for for sort of virtual reality like simpler virtual reality solutions like Google Cardboard and the Samsung help me out there's a Samsung uh, the, phone situation. Yeah, the, the Gear VR. Okay, um, but then and are there any? Uh, so like, I guess what I'm asking is like, what's the easiest way to sort of like? Is there an easy way to go and experience a movie in virtual reality? Like, uh, and by easy, I mean you know, relatively easy in the scale of things. The, um, the the relatively easiest way to try this is to track down or order um, a cardboard viewer, and those can be found on uh, Google's website for around $20, if not less. Um, there are a lot of, like, giveaways and stuff where you can find them online. I know Coca-Cola had a deal where you could actually turn, like, a case of Coke cans into a VR viewer somehow. <laughs> and, and and that version of the, te- the technology uses your phone. It's very basic. It's very... Um, the latency is rather high, so it's not as comfortable as some of the other headsets. But it's a really simple way to jump in and try it. And I think just... Even that small taste of it will give you an idea of how it changes how you interact with the the media you're consuming, and it gives you a, at least a, a tiny window into what the future is going to hold. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Inter- interesting stuff. On, yeah. You're like the Yoda of VR. You know what I mean? Like you're the yeah. all-knowing. <laughs> and, and I'm sorry that I just like talked about Star Trek for ten minutes without breathing. <laughs> That there is was, totally cool. There was a lot of Star Trek in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for today's podcast. We'll see you again next week. Cutscene is produced by Dave Tack. 
Got questions or comments for us? Hit us up by email at cutscene at polygon.com. For more episodes of Cutscene, go to polygon.com slash cutscene. For more Polygon, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And if you have a moment, like and review us on iTunes. It really helps. All right, I think that that's what we'll call the end. <laughs>